that performance was pitiful from start to finish. There was no tempo, there was no approach. It was the same tedious, stultifying, boring rubbish. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. Welcome along, great to have you with us on the Sunday paper review. I'll go through the back pages. Gary Lineker's everywhere. (laughs) That's the the short version, Gary Lineker's everywhere. Even to give you a sense of this thing, even on the back page of the mirror, Jurgen Klopp is looking glum, as you might expect. The headline is shitstorm. And then it's, no, not Liverpool's defeat. Jurgen talking about Lineker and BBC Rao. So that's where we are. Uh, Jurgen Klopp has defended Gary Lineker, described the BBC's handling of the crisis as a shitstorm. So that's the lead on the uh, mirror. They also have uh, pictures of Johnny Sexton yesterday at Murrayfield. Johnny's a genius, says Stuart Hogg. Absolute rugby genius ahead of kickoff at Murrayfield later today. We have uh, Scotland leading on the back page of The Sun. Uh, Scare of the dog, Ireland wary of Russell. They have a picture of Haaland, who scored a penalty for Man City yesterday away to Crystal Palace to win the game. And of course, Lineker on the front pages everywhere. Uh, Revolt destroys BBC Sport. Lineker won't back down. Tim Davey, I won't quit. So, impasse to say the least at the moment. Sunday World, interesting story here. Salah days end in May. Liverpool to offload Mo Salah as they seek to rebuild yet another dreadful after yet another dreadful defeat so seemingly Salah at the door uh, then we have Sunday Times picture is Blue Murder the headline France 53 England 10 all sorts of records broken yesterday at Twickenham England on the floor and then the uh, story to the side Katie Taylor is going to fight in Dublin so this is now very much on this will be May 20th she is fighting Chantelle Cameron At the Three Arena, Uh, Cameron is 31 years of age. She is undisputed champion at her weight. All four super lightweight titles. Undisputed champion. Katie Taylor is undisputed champion at her weight. So somebody is going to be undisputed champion across two weights. Taylor uh, says... By the way, it's two undefeated reigning undisputed world champions going up against each other. And I believe that's the first time that's ever happened in the modern era of sport. Back page of the Mail on Sunday then. Uh, BT's bid for Lineker. This was always going to happen, wasn't it? Uh, So uh, BT and their new uh, station, as it will be next year, interested in taking Gary Lineker. And a really nice picture. Johnny Sexton about to uh, kick rugby ball at Murrayfield yesterday, warming up. No excuses. Ireland head coach Farrell believes the mental fortitude of his team can help them beat the Scots today. Uh, they also, beneath that, Mark Galler has the story about Katie Taylor against Chantelle Cameron, 20th of May. And then Sunday, independent, finally, that's my boy, Pep Guardiola, hailing Erling Haaland. And beneath that, Dunphy calls for BBC to bring back Lineker. Very happy to say Dion Fanning from The Currency is here in the studio and Fionn Davenport travel journalist and owing to a crippling golf addiction member of Golf Weekly is here <laughs> as well. You're both very welcome. Hey Joe. Joe. There is so much to get into on the Lineker 
coverage right across the board. I mean, one of the minor points is Eamon Dunphy's drive-by on per George Hamilton. Who's <laughs> the true victim of all of this, I think. Well, apart from Eamon Dunphy himself, who has somehow managed to make him a, a victim of a sort of, uh, you know, a, a counterfactual world where he would be in the, in the you know, yeah. he would be in the BBC. Well, he is asked at one stage, you know, what would you say if... Uh, they said, would you stand in for Lineker? I'd say, listen, guys, if you think Lineker is bad, wait till you have me, <laughs> said Dunphy to Neve Horn here on the front page of the Sunday <laughs> Independent. It's too funny. <laughs> it's too funny. So this is, it's a per, imagine George Hamilton having his cornflakes this morning. Yeah. There's some classical music on the background. <laughs> Life is good. You're George Hamilton. You're, you're, a, you're, yeah. you're a living legend. It's lovely, lovely spring morning. Yeah. Mm. Little Prokofiev playing in the background. <laughs> Indeed. So he's reading here. Eamon Dunphy is uh, praising the solidarity. It's extraordinary, says Dunphy. The fact is that almost the entire soccer output of the BBC yesterday went off air. The results, everything. Almost nobody was prepared to work. Now, if I got into trouble with RTE on that kind of issue, the last person I'd expect to show solidarity with me would be George Effing Hamilton. <laughs> I know. <laughs> He's done nothing. What? He's done it, nothing. It too, Eamon. <laughs> in, this, in this notional controversy, <laughs> Eamon is now... But that is, that is a sign of a, uh, a kind of overactive mind, all right. What would happen if I was in this situation and who would support me? And who wouldn't? Who would fail to support me? That the Sunday Independent didn't reach out to George Hamilton for comment shows they're not even trying. Well, George could, you know, so George could just say, in this in this fictional world, I would actually stand yes. with Eamon. Yes, I'd uh, be the Ian Wright to yeah. Eamon's. I Gary I Hunter. like um, he posits like if he was still broadcasting in this atmosphere, uh, you know. Uh, would I be able to sit on a sports panel in the current climate? Not a chance. If I'd said the things I'd said about Platini and Ronaldo and Jack Charlton, not a chance, not a hope. And it's like, to which the only advice you can say is you should watch Sky Sports on a Monday night or after a big game on a Sunday because that's exactly the kind of stuff mm. they love to talk about. Good point. <laughs> but it is, it's the, uh, yeah, it's, it's as Dion says, now he is counterfactual view of it all. Specifically, they're talking about RTE because he finishes that point by saying look at what they have there now so everybody's getting it really there yeah um, the interesting thing on, on that there's a couple of things in it that are beyond just about Eamon Dunphy amazingly um, you know and he just mentions you know Lineker's 1.5 million euro salary there 1.3 million sterling I think and I actually was struck by that by thinking that I thought it would be more mm. I actually think, you know, when you look at what people in RTE are paid and you look at it and you think, actually, uh, for the BBC, for the reach they have, for the importance of Match of the Day, I actually thought he'd be on a, on a bigger salary. So I, there's, no, I don't, there's no great point in that except to say that actually what the BBC get for Gary Lineker I think is 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 quite a lot, and it also I think you know you've touched on the BT are interested. What other what other broadcasters would think they could get for Gary Lineker at that price or or multiple of it is is quite a lot, and it's you know he's he's quite available in that sense. So <clears throat> there is no there is no real. Not to, not jeopardy because I think he's taken a stand, and there's obviously a, it's it's. It's draining when you're in the middle of any kind of scandal like that or a situation like that with people, uh, and especially in a, in a culture war situation. But it is not 
um, he has got he 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 is in a very strong position. Not just, but like you know, obviously because of the solidarity that was shown by you know the extraordinary developments and the inability of the people at the BBC above above the BBC Sports Department who yeah. seemed to take this decision on Friday to actually anticipate what would happen. Um, but he's in an incredibly strong position. It does seem that way. This is a complex topic and I would like to tell people what's in the papers as well as get your views on it. Just a, a, a jumping off point, and this perhaps is not the most important uh, point, but it's interesting to get an array of views on just the actual tweet itself on Lineker's part. So, for instance, you have Eamon Dunphy and Barney Ronay agreeing on a point. Uh, Dunphy says here, if you start to compare nasty right-wing Tories to the Nazis in Germany, then what do you ever do if there really ever is fascism on the rise in the UK? And that's the problem. He went way over the top. It was a stupid thing to say because it simply isn't true. Dunphy wants Lineker back and supports Lineker, but he thought that the comparison with Germany was wrong. Barney Rene agrees. Again, Rene, and we'll come to this in due course, is highly critical of the BBC. But Barney Rene does say, Lineker's key mistake was to throw Nazi Germany in there. However fine and nuanced Gary's understanding of the semiotics of national socialist messaging in the years 1930 to 1940 is, it would be good generally if people could stop using Nazi Germany as a kind of bad things emoji. Better to explain and use detail. Save Nazi Germany. Keep it in your back pocket for those occasions when only Nazi Germany will do. Now, Martin Samuel argues, by contrast, in the Sunday Times, he says, Lineker has been derided for comparing government rhetoric around immigration to that of the Nazis, except he didn't mention the Nazis. He specifically referred to 1930s Germany. Also, he tweeted about a troubling escalation in language married to an aggressive policy. Uh, so there are uh, various I, yeah, opinions. Can I, can I just that, that is not the key point. Well, no, it's, a, but, it's an important it's point, an, though. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's an aspect. It's an important point because I think there is there's a couple of elements here that I think people find are really wrestling with and struggle with. In, and it's not just to do with Gary Lineker, but it's to do with the world today. And impartiality, like the BBC, the BBC guidelines and impartiality say that even people outside the political sphere, if they're high, high profile, should try to avoid getting involved in things that are party political, right? There is a, there is, that's one element of it. There is, then is this, that works on the assumption, on the basis that we are living in a world where, you know, party politics is conducted broadly in kind of good faith. Mm. That there is, you know, that people aren't going to come on and just lie, uh, and I was watching the Laura Coonsberg show this morning and she was saying that if if she had tweeted this, she wasn't saying it in a way like she was criticising Gary Lineker. She if she had tweeted this, she would have been out the door straight away because she's a political journalist. There is some more leeway to somebody like Gary Lineker. Now, somebody like Laura Coonsberg is under fire an awful lot of the time. She's under fire recently on her own show when somebody appeared on her show and said Boris Johnson lied and she immediately put in the kind of standard rebuttal because you have to be impartial. That's quite a charge. It's not quite a charge to say Boris Johnson lied. It's a fact to say Boris Johnson lied. It is his entire career is built on lying. But the instinctive rebuttal and impartiality actually is a disservice to the truth then. So that's one aspect of it. Yeah. So then I think the thing about, about Germany and bringing, you know, at what point 
do you start saying uh, and I, I get that argument and people you know there are people who you know who have made that argument that Lineker shouldn't have brought this in but you also there was a, 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 a 83 year old Holocaust survivor confronted Suella Braverman the Home Secretary recently and criticised her language on that very basis because when she uses words like invasion and swarm it's it reminds her she was a child in the Holocaust and it reminds her of what the, the language that was used in 1930s Germany. So you can argue it from different points of view, but you're, you're not saying when you say the language is like 1930s Germany that everything that is going to unfold is going to unfold exactly like 1930s Germany. But what you're saying is there is a demonization going on and it is going on in bad faith and it is going on alongside... A, what, what, what aspects... Of, as somebody tweeted, like, okay, if you want to show you're not like 1930s Germany, maybe don't then a, 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 attack the, the, the state broadcaster in the company and try and get somebody taken off the air for their comments. Maybe don't try and prorogue Parliament as this Conservative government did under the previous Prime Minister, or one of their previous Prime Ministers. <laughs> All the, maybe watch, watch out when, when newspapers refer to judges as the enemies of the people. So at some point, and this is the thing, like one of the articles criticizing Lineker this week talked about Godwin's law and, you know, the, the, the law being this, you know, it was just a, a, a US lawyer came up with this idea in 2012 that, you know, everyone, like if at some point in on arguments in the internet, somebody will always end up referencing the Nazis or Nazi the, Germany. The longer it goes on, the more. The longer like, it goes on, the more, more likely this becomes. Now, Godwin was, that was like, that is like, ancient history. Godwin was talking about things like people arguing about the reduction in the size of Mars bars, you know, and that somehow it ends up what we're talking about the Nazis. Not people talking about kids and women on boats and referring to them as invaders and a swarm. You know, not, and Godwin himself in 2017 said, guys, the white supremacists in Charlottesville, go ahead, the call them Nazis call them Nazis. And who was being impartial there? Donald Trump. Do you say, and this is where people can't actually get their heads around it, because party politics, and the BBC guidelines are totally pointless because party politics is not a protection against the erosion of democracy anymore. Because if you were the BBC and you were in America and you were saying, uh, we can't, we must be impartial in party politics, you would say, well, we can't, you know, when Donald Trump is saying the election is stolen, we have to we have to treat that argument seriously, or else we're we're being biased. It's a lie, and this is what this is what Gary Lineker's tweet actually exposes: that there is just no framework, really that that is that can actually um, really that, that it's not nuanced enough to deal with the situation as it stands. You're thrilled. Your heart beats double time. You're lost in the moment. But not completely, because you're in a new city after all. This feeling started with up to 20% off Aer Lingus flights and bags to Europe. Who knows what's around the corner? Smells like your new favourite bakery. Feel like this in Barcelona, Brindisi and all destinations across Europe. Book now at aerlingus.com. Aer Lingus, you're very welcome. T's and C's apply, travel May to August 2023. Starting a new chapter can be the most thrilling thing in the world. And the new all-electric Audi Q8 e-tron range marks the start of something even more exciting. 
where progress is a matter of character, where an idea stretches as far as you wish to go with the range to get you there, and where charging times are reduced, freeing you up for even more adventures. Discover the fully electric Audi Q8 e-tron range at your nearest Audi dealer. And then it just becomes something for uh, the, the, the Conservative government to attack a broadcaster about and that and that is and I think Barney Roney goes on to say that this is state interference and a dangerous what they've done is actually is pretty chilling and that is and that is the reality so because he says 1930s Germany it doesn't mean that everything is going to unfold that we are dealing with it. but yeah. there is there, there at the same time you have to be alert yes the point Roney makes on this whole key politics out of sport argument as well. He uh, succinctly says that the suspension of Lineker from BBC presenting duties and not news night or question time, but the bloodless warm bath match at the day over a tweet sent on a Wednesday afternoon criticising government policy on migrants is frankly a jaw dropping act of political intervention. Joe Brawley picks up Dion's point in the main news section of the Sunday Independent today where you know, our basic humanity is under attack, our sense of goodness and integrity, our instinct to help and empathise. Um, he talks about the Tories having adopted the US Republican Party playbook, the Murdoch Press, the Mail, GB News, Ital, help them spread lies and create division. Um, I mean, obviously we're meant to be talking about the sports, but Gary Lineker has waded either cleverly or inadvertently into like a chess in four dimensions being played out by the Tory party who as soon as they announce this new bill that isn't a law yet but it's a proposed law that even they acknowledge that it could be illegal (laughs) you know um, the UNHCR said it's a clear breach of the Refugee Convention. They have urged the British government to pursue, and I'm quoting, more humane and practical policy solutions. So is the end game here is, is that it seems like there's multiple th- threads being pursued here. One, it's the Tories being able to move the Overton window. So all of a sudden, the idea of just making all asylum seekers illegal and forever banning them from forever seeking asylum somehow becomes part of the mainstream of of legitimate political debate, that it doesn't become like the most offensive thing you could ever think of. And so that's one. And two, like... Gary Lineker's tweet is, this is meat to the Tories. They love this. And this is what Joe Brawley writes about. He goes, they absolutely love the idea because it allows them to kind of attack one of their favourite um, uh, subjects, and that's the BBC itself. Um, you yeah, know, There's a thrill in it. There, there is a thrill. And, and this is a win-win for 36 Tory MPs have said, you know, that suspending Gary Lineker isn't going far enough. Yeah. You need to apologise or just get rid of them altogether. So Raleigh argues that it's given them the perfect opportunity to spread hatred division into every living room in the country. And the headline of his piece uh, goes from this line, Lineker has helped them to go mainstream. He says, what we're seeing now in Britain, like America, is civil war without the guns. The Americans are just further than the road, which is a Chilean, but probably a true thought. So he argues on the impartiality argument. He says that is a non-starter. It's okay for Lineker to devote much of the BBC's World Cup opener to criticisms of Qatar. Uh, Free speech is only free if you agree with them, he says, of the Tory government. Um, It was interesting. I was listening to The Rest is Politics and The Telegraph do something similar. Uh, The Telegraph have 
a poll just to see how this has gone down. And the majority of people support Lineker. Uh, not in colossal numbers. So it's a YouGov snap poll, Saturday night. Uh, the majority of the British public think the BBC was wrong, but only 53%. Uh, just over a quarter think BBC were correct, and then 20% don't know. So it's 53% against 27%. Uh, if you're a Labour voter, 75% of Labour voters think Lineker is correct and the decision was wrong. Uh, 51% of Tory voters think that the BBC made the correct decision. Um, on this bill, on the Rest is Politics uh, podcast, there were some, some great numbers. So and this, this goes to Broly's point as well. So Lineker has, has created this massive storm. Um, to use that US uh, phrase, this bill plays very well with the base. So 83% of 2019 Conservative voters are very much in favour of this bill. Stop the Boats is one of Rishi Sunak's mm. big five promises. So 83% of Tory voters love this bill according to the rest of politics. Gary Lineker has just given this bill, excuse me, given this bill more airtime than they could have possibly uh, hoped for. I wonder will that backfire as the debate well, goes on you across see, the, the week? The, the, that's, that's also true, but there's also a reason why they're amplifying it like they are, why Lineker is amplified like he is, because in, in, in a country like Britain now, which is actually beginning to have great doubts about Brexit because of the realities of what's happening, the small boats is actually another consequence of yeah. Brexit. Because before Brexit, if you if you arrived in Britain, you could be returned to the country that, where you came from because of your, your membership of the EU. Since Brexit, people who make that journey know that once they get there, they can't be sent back anywhere. So, like, you, you might start asking, hold on a second, why, why, has, there's, why has there been this big spike since, in 20, since 2020? Mm. Uh, in in people crossing the channel, oh, it's it's another it's another thing that Brexit actually turned out not to be all the things that were promised. They've just uh, Rishi Sunak has just agreed a deal, five hundred million deal with Macron to for Britain to give France five hundred million to kind of rectify this, and this is because of what of of their post Brexit situation. Yeah. So if you can make, as Fionn says, if you can make noise about Gary Lineker, or if you can make something about this play with the base, and again, this is the situation, this is why the language is important, because in a situation where these the reasons for these things are actually something else, it is always it is always the the, the play of certain people in society to actually say, no, it is the vulnerable people you need to actually blame for this. Yeah. They're the people you should be threatened by, not the people who uh, who led this or who created this situation. Because, and then just, I mean, I really, like it's an interesting one to the Telegraph's own point about playing well with the base. I saw one that was like one of these quick polls done where an overwhelming majority of people, when framed, when you frame the question is, is uh, do you support the right of people to enter illegally into the country? The vast majority go, well, no, I don't. But if you were to frame a question and say, do you agree that children, uh, asylum seeker children should be imprisoned and then deported back to wherever? Like you, you, you wouldn't find you wouldn't find the same kind of meaty support and favour. And so, in the end, it feels that Lineker is the canary in the coal mine for for something entirely way above him and way beyond um, anything to do with like freedom of speech. Even it's to do with the Tories being able to say once they have to water down this bill, and the likelihood is they will. 
um, they can say, well, you know, you know, we're tough on 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 asylum seekers, we're tough on illegal entries, but you know, all the the wokerati. They're the ones that are kind of stopping us from... And this ultimately, and is, it is worth bearing in mind, is that the Tories are playing horribly in the, in the, in the national polls, that Labour are overwhelmingly ahead of them. So yes. this, it, there, there's, there's a huge lot going on. And look, as I said, Gary Lineker either wades cleverly into this or inadvertently you see, into this. There was that great question on Question Time the other night where a guy in the audience made the point they can't run on the basis of their record. They can't run on no. their personalities, so they're left with division, hatred, fear. And Well, the culture and wars was a thing, they, they and they had people under Boris Johnson, there were people, I, there was a, there was, you know, there was a whole policy unit in, in Downing Street designed just to kind of, you know, foment the culture wars. And this is what they're doing. And Martin Samuel piece today, yeah. and it is actually, you know, important because when you read the headline on it, it is, uh, BBC's treatment of Gary Lineker has given football its Colin Kaepernick moment. And you kind of think, because of this has got so ridiculous, you kind of think, that's really stretching it. I think so. But then, but then, then when you look at what it's actually about, is it really stretching it? Is it really stretching it to say that this is an important issue that people are actually right to take a stand over? That's, that's the thing. I suppose I'm uncomfortable with that comparison because... Kaepernick's career went up in flames whereas Gary Lineker may have to choose between going back to the BBC okay, for 1.3 yeah. or, or taking a 5 million deal but, from but in point of in the point in, the, in as regards taking uh, that's that's fair enough but in regards taking a stand there is, there is it's not just a stand about I want to be you know yeah. I want to be free it's not a, it's not a stand over should I be free just to tweet what I like yes. it's what he's tweeting about, about. Yes. so yeah. that is the point and there's just, in Samuel Peace he does say on the old, on our old friend impartiality that uh um, he talks about how draconian the BBC rules are and he said other BBC staff were issued with instructions not to attend anti-Donald Trump rallies or Black Lives Matter demonstrations even in, even in an unidentified private capacity. Yet what contravenes BBC policy in supporting anti-racism? Must the BBC see both sides of it for the sake of balance? That racism's got its good points and this should also be reflected. There's a kind of notion that everyone's opinion is equally valid, says Dara O'Brien, the comedian. My arse, a bloke who's a professor of dentistry for 40 years, does not have a debate with some idiot who removes his teeth with a string and a door. Now, the problem is that the idiot with the string and the door in Britain is in government. (laughs) And certainly gets equal minutes time on air. Uh, just to give you a sense of the Telegraph, because you know yeah. we're probably coming at this from a viewpoint. Uh, Sir John Whittingdale, who is uh, of the Conservative family and is a former Secretary of State for Culture and Media. So he says BBC had no choice but to suspend Lineker. He said the row is not about the right to free speech. It is accepting, however, that extremely well paid employment from the BBC means that there will be limitations on the exercise of that right. He said impartiality one of the core principles of the BBC. Uh, He says the BBC's guidance on social media says some employees who are not journalists still have additional responsibility because of their profile. And he says as their highest paid presenter, Lineker falls into that category. And he also talks about the 
politics at play here. So he says uh, there's been a lot of talk of Richard Sharp, the chairman, and his links with Boris Johnson. He says there's nothing new about the non-executive chairman or board members having a political allegiance. He says a former Labour cabinet minister, Joel Barnett, served as vice chairman of the uh, governors for seven years and Chris Pattern, a former Conservative cabinet minister, chaired the BBC Trust for four years from 2011. So that was his take on things. There's another piece, for instance, uh, Stephen Pollard, good riddance to virtue signalling football pundits. Uh, I think if you use football, the word woke or virtue signalling, you've lost. You're, you're, it's you're it's the new Godwin's law. Uh, all football, no punditry. The greatest irony of this situation is we could end up with a much better match of the day than we're used <laughs> like to. Like last night's. Uh, the BBC's obsession with punditry rather than actual sport has long been a blight on its coverage. Uh, too often it's simply embarrassing to watch a TV version of dad dancing. So I usually record match of the day and I fast forward through the so-called analysis. I don't know if you uh, ever chance upon GB News. I mean, you're... I only see clips. I can't get it in my... So last night they had alternative match of the day. I did see that. And uh, the co-host Patrick Christie's was asked for his thought on the game between Leeds United and Brighton, to which his answer was, I thought, uh, he said, Brighton, I've never been to, though I imagine that Gary Lineker would quite like Brighton because it's full of rainbow flags and woke people. I did see that clip. Um, <laughs> uh, and then Dolan, the co-host replies, oh, I think that's a fair point, the tofu-eating wokerati. <laughs> <laughs> that is good, though. You know, I would maybe there's certain uh, match of the day pundits that I think put those guys on, on instead yeah. of ahead it is of. Very depressing where we are, isn't it? It's terribly like depressing. It's, you know that that point of Brawley's that uh, the UK is just a touch behind America, but I mean the the trends will uh, continue and probably speed up and and become further it, radicalized. Interestingly, through. the like because the two newspapers that are really kind of pushing the 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 anti-BBC agenda, the Mail and the Telegraph. That's yeah. traditionally... But in uh, Rob Draper, Joe Bernstein and Mike Keegan in their football won the BBC nil on page 74 of the Mail is generally quite sympathetic towards BBC support of Lineker. There does generally seem to be a separation between sports department... Yeah, and, and so section. that so this um, there's a piece that is really broadly sympathetic. Then, you know, just to give the balance, you've got Jonathan McAvoy, who time overpaid Gary preached elsewhere. He goes, um, and regardless of their voting record or intentions, they might, like me, this is uh, the good ordinary people of Britain, uh, wish not to be berated in their leisure time by a sports presenter who happens not to be the very best history master in the world. Um, and then uh, was there, and then interestingly, he, he writes, was there total unanimity from within the Beebs ranks in support of Lineker? Not from what I heard. One important figure in BBC Sport over the last 40 years sent me an unsolicited note um, saying there was very little sympathy among the workforce toward him. In that exchange, Lineker was described as an overpaid presenter who had dictated his own terms for too long. To um, park the wider grimness for a second and talk about the non-important issue of Lineker and the BBC and his return, what do you think happens here? Is he done? Um, I think it, I, it's good, it could be could be tricky if he's not going to. They clearly have set. A, they've handled it so badly, but they clearly have some idea of what they want to do regarding his tweets and. He is in the. He is. He is a target for that. I thought all week. I was kind of surprised during the week when it seemed to be that he was going to be back on. I thought the way they've allowed this story to build, and you know, people have talked about this running with it on the BBC, almost in that way of 
sort of slightly masochistic way where they kind of feel they have to cover themselves the way they would cover anybody else. Sort of led led with the with this story, I think, on Wednesday night on the news at ten, which was seemed like a incredible overreaction. But they were getting themselves into a position where they would have to take some action. Um, and as Barney Roney points out, the, re- the reasons for that um, are clearly political. But it's, I think it's going to, it could be very tricky for them to kind of back down on this. But it is extraordinary that if he goes, <laughs> it may be that a director general of the BBC goes as well. Mm. Um, which, and he has, he has pushed this impartiality thing. And that's why when people point to previous tweets that other people have done, Andrew Neil being the kind of example that people give, this has been this is a kind of a, a recent attempt to actually regulate social media in a way that um, hasn't been done previously. Again, I think people are able to distinguish between what Gary Lineker thinks. They certainly will be after this, what Gary Lineker thinks and what the BBC thinks. But it may be that they just decide that it has that feel of something that is kind of coming to an end mm. in these stories, like the the the, the natural conclusion is that he decides to go somewhere else. And I think that's what's going to happen. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. And, and as much as, I mean, they've boxed themselves into a corner. There was an interview, Tim Davey was interviewed and he got pretty hard hit. Yeah. Um, even though he, he manages it with a certain amount of aplomb, but like there's so many gaps in what he's saying that he's, he, he's under pressure. I think, can the BBC survive without Lineker? Absolutely. I think the story will fade and they can get another presenter in and, you know, everything moves on. Um, but the problem... I think is that even Lineker's son George like doubled down and said, no, he's not going to apologize. So is there a fix where they can go, okay, look, we're going to leave the past behind us, but moving forward, these we've, we've used this episode to really kind of get a deep understanding and everybody has a clear view of what the, the rules are governing what your performances are on social media. There is that way. That could be a face-saving uh, for both the BBC. I don't think Lineker needs to say, I don't think he cares enough. I has, think Lineker is ready to go. He has a lot of leverage as well. He's a huge amount of leverage. And also, he's 62. And dare I say, um, for a man who has a lot of different business interests, he's on BT Sport already. They can ramp Step up. Step back from that now, actually. Oh, but he, they can, well, as uh, I think you mentioned it. That There's an offer in. Rebranded TNT are looking to yeah. bring him back. Um, he'll never be short of offers. So if he wants to be TV facing, he will be. Mm but he has lots of business interests. Maybe he wants to just work less. I don't know. You know, I, I think he can live without match of the day. I think the BBC will be fine without Gary yeah. Lineker, but I think the, the, the other point is, will the BBC be okay with the reasons for Lineker's departure that's if he leaves? Distinction. Yeah, Because that's the thing. And that, again, because of the political pressure, the way they've responded in this story, the way they've handled it, that is going to be the thing that people will see. And I do think if Lineker goes, the Director General will go as well. Like that's just That seems to me that he won't be able to, the contagion from this will, will take, and he should go. Yes. Uh, and, you know, that the, the point about uh, there's been p- political appointments before, the political appointments before didn't help Boris, they didn't help the Prime Minister secure an £800,000 loan while they were actually canvassing, canvassing for the job. For the job. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there is there is a difference and that is and that again comes back to the point about this that we are in we are in uncharted waters in terms of how we were saying there's always been political appointments there hasn't always been politics like this yes that's that's the distinction it's different. and that's why Lineker 
isn't making a party political point when he does this. He's actually making a different point. And Declan Lynch makes that. I know we'll move on, but he says that, you know, he says when Gary Lineker tweets something that is patently true about the language of the Tory government and refugees, he is cancelled by, 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 by the BBC, a corporation now dis- disfigured by years of Tory abuse and corruption. And that's and that's that's the reality of it. And that when Lineker, if Lineker goes, the BBC can get on with that Gary Lineker, but whether they can actually how they can correct themselves when they're under attack for license fee, various things that they've had to kind of withstand, and people in the gov- Tory government want to take them on over. That's going to be tricky. The the match of the day theme tune as the uh, as the anthem of the anti-Tory crowd now. Who'd have thought that? Mm. I wasn't surprised they didn't play the theme tune last night. It would have been very difficult to play the theme tune and just have silence afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was funny. Did they, did they, was that the actual crowd noise? It reminded me. It was a throwback. It's amazing the things you forget. I thought it, was, it was, thought it was a lockdown crowd noise again. It felt like that watching it. You know, I'd completely forgotten about fake crowd noise from lockdown. That's how, that's how depressing the match of the day was last night. Let's push on. I mean, if there's one guarantee in all of this, it's that in the comment section on YouTube, someone is calling someone a Nazi right now. So. Yeah. Our woke rat. Leave it or there. A member of the woke rat. Oh. Virtue signaling woke To be sure. To yeah. be sure. Something wholesome. Something that would just make you feel good for a few moments. Padre Carrington. We can almost say universally respected and uh, loved uh, figure yeah. in this country. So Dermot Gleeson here. I'm surprised it didn't get more coverage somehow. I'm not. Maybe it, it speaks of golf's dwindling uh, coverage. But Dermot Gleese, Harrington's Hall of Fame honour is his greatest distinction. If you miss this during the week, Padraig Harrington is to be inducted into golf's Hall of Fame next year with Tom Weiskopf. I mean, if you said that to teenage Harrington, that you know you'll be going into the Hall of Fame with Tom Weiskopf in After Mark O'Meara. He would have been a uh, little taken aback. So he's just the third Irish golfer to be inducted into the Golf World Hall of Fame, Joe Carr and Christy Senior in ahead of him. Uh, of all the honours bestowed on him, this is the highest, says Dermot Gleeson. And- I have to say, I'm going to respectfully disagree with, with, with Dermot. I understand the point. Like, this is just due recognition for the extraordinary career that Harrington has had. What was a higher honour? <laughs> Winning three majors. That wasn't bestowed on him. He won those. OK, I, I just feel like the, the Golf Hall of Fame is an afterthought. Does anybody really care? I do. Do you? Yeah, I think it's amazing. Sorry, that Harrington is recognised by his peers for being a great player is absolutely par for the course. Golf pun, very much intended. Um, like, so in a sense of like, yeah, this is exactly what should happen. It's, there's no surprises. He, um, and unlike Joe Carr and Christy Senior, and all respect to Joe Carr as an incredible amateur and Christy as a great player, like Harrington won three majors. Like, <laughs> that's some, and in due time, it'll happen to Rory. And that's just as it should be. I just feel this is that like, maybe the reason why it's not such a big deal is because it's to be expected. And, the, and I have to say respectfully to the Golf Hall of Fame, like, who cares? Okay, well, you've taken the legs out from... Under Sorry. My, my favourite line in, in, in this story is, <laughs> I, I love how Dermot straddles, you know, he is, like, revered around the, around the world among golf, your golf community as a golf journalist, but he's also, you know, a guy who knows, like, the local. So he says, you know, his elevation as a third Irish inductee into the World Golf Hall of Fame comes after being honoured with the Harrington Room at Stacksound Golf Club in March 2011. Yeah. And it's like those, like... 
from the Harrington Room to the Golf Hall of Fame. It was just like, it was the obvious path. Mm. <laughs> uh, those two things, and whatever happened in between, it's just... It, it, sorry, it, of course, well, it's great for Harrington, but uh, my, I guess the point is, is I don't think the Golf Hall of Fame, I think it, it feels something very corporate that's just kind of, it's like, guys, my, I was looking at the winner, like, Marco Mira was inducted a few years. I'm like, sure, great golfer, you know. He, like, he's in fine company. It's fine. Good for him. But I, I think that Harrington, I think Harrington's own career is is way more impressive. Oh, sure. But this is a moment next year where, you know, Butch Harmon, for instance, not inducted. And there's, a, I don't know if you've listened to Sky last night, there was a real sense of, what are they waiting for? I mean, it maybe I was thinking, like, oh, Did you, I guess okay, maybe Paul McGinley was saying, like, what are they waiting for? Yeah. Put him in. For Harrington, at 52, it's a chance for and the golf community, people in this country, to come together next year and go, do you know what? There was something wonderful about him in 30 years of being around. Uh, never put a foot wrong publicly. No. There's such a an authenticity to him. He has no problem looking like a madman on the golf range, trying all sorts of gadgets. Yeah. If his CV wasn't so good, he could be a running joke in the golf world. Instead, he's respected because he's so authentic. And, and the best thing about Harrington, I'd put it to you, is this this uh, embodiment of striving for excellence, surpassing all expectations, your own and everybody else's, beyond belief. No doubt. And never becoming jaded. We will all play silly, pay silly amounts of money to play golf. We look at tour pros who don't uh, appreciate the courses they play, the money they get, the, the lifestyle they lead, whereas Harrington still just loves the game. He has yeah, yeah. he, never become jaded. And he is one of Ireland's, if not Ireland's, greatest uh, sports person to win three majors in that sport in the Tiger Woods era is extraordinary. And all you're saying to me is, it's fine. It's fine. And I guess <laughs> everything you're saying is absolutely true. However, having sat through the Tiger Woods induction into the Hall of Fame, <laughs> I felt the blood streaming out of my eyes. Yeah. And like Tiger Woods, who is, to my mind, unquestionably the greatest golfer to ever, ever pick up a golf club. Yeah. Um, even they somehow managed to decimate the impact of it. I just found it so boring and just so corporate and and so as a result I I I I have a very kind of iffy view of the golf hall. Of Fair me. enough. I accept that too. <laughs> Can I ask your opinion on a story in various pages including page 58 of the Mail on Sunday Riyadh Al Samurai here writing about Rory McIlroy who if you're not into your golf, McElroy hasn't won a major since 2014. He was in the wilderness a touch for most of 2021 yeah. and bounced back spectacularly from about the Masters, the final round of the Masters to be specific, through to all of last year. He, he has been extraordinary. He was so unlucky not to win a major at St. Andrews. He's played incredible golf, uh, four wins in nine months, uh, second places to beat the band and just looked poised to win a major not least Augusta for most of last year into this year and now suddenly the brakes have come on and he has missed the cut at Sawgrass he has not been in the habit of missing cuts so only the third time since July 2021 he's missed a cut he's five over par uh, so a new driver for sure which is leading to a, a miss to the right because the driver he really liked had to be binned three weeks ago because it was in danger of becoming non-compliant yeah. due to the springiness of the club face brought on by age. And then his putting has 
deserted him again. Again, his work with Brad Faxon last year paid dividends. He'd never put it better. But his putting across these two days, 60 puts. Now, golfers want to be aiming for maybe... 30. 24, 25, 26, 27 around. So to be 60 puts across two rounds is far too many. As Macro said of his performance, it was just very blah. Um, but the interesting aspect, if you want to put it to you, is he says, I need and I would love to get back to being a golfer again. I've made some sacrifices. He's talking about the live situation here. Uh, that's where I've made sacrifices, a bit of time with some of this other stuff. I'm ready to get back to being a golfer. So for instance, last Tuesday, while uh, everybody was out practicing their putting, he was in a seven-hour board meeting to try and present a new PGA Tour format, which we don't have to get into. And basically, Paul McGinley said in the piece in the Sunday Independent that uh, this is not Rory's tour, because Rory basically has been the spokesman. This is not Rory's tour. It's not Tiger's tour. It's Jay Monaghan's tour. He's the commissioner. And he said, uh, for McElroy, the battery is down. Now, he needs to get that battery charged for Augusta quickly. Yeah, and... I mean, one, it is worth pointing out that Rory doesn't have a great record around Sawgrass, which is where they're playing the players. Did win it in 18. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But generally, it's not a course that he loves. And, it, you know, so there's that. But, uh, and everything you said about the driver and, you know, the you pudding. and the pudding. Uh, Jack Nicholas was on Nick Faldo's podcast, which really is a quite the treat. Um, and he said as much as well during the week. It's like, oh, Rory's lacking focus, you know, that he needs to get back and all the rest. So, and Rory acknowledged as much himself. I mean, all of these things could be true. Uh, they have the smell of authenticity about them. But there's also kind of an industry around Rory of always finding reasons why he's not playing well. <laughs> and You're part of it. I'm, I am absolutely part of it. And uh, and he's under a bit of pressure now, you know, or maybe it's like the Masters is coming up and anybody who follows golf knows that Rory and will he win the Masters is one of the key questions of the golfing well, season. It, it will now define his career. And it'll define his career. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think on the surface you're looking and you're going, yeah, absolutely, you haven't had time to focus on practice and practice is so important. Um he also has the likes of John Ram and particularly now Scotty Scheffler breathing down his neck and you know, they're not waiting for him to refocus his attentions yeah. on golf. You know, these guys are just gonna accelerate ahead and because last year he thrived with all this going on, it seemed to energize. Well, it galvanized. Yeah. Didn't so, it? so maybe this is just uh, you know looking for two plus two and getting five, yeah. or, or or maybe just it is the culmination of a year of fighting on both fronts and, I, and I, tiredness is. Coming. I mean, I I also think that like he owes it to himself. I I don't know that like is it somehow it is his given right that he has to be the spokesperson I mean I realise he's on the players committee so give or take he's going to be the one that's asked a lot of the questions but like you know I mean he is after all a professional golfer and you know like if you're not prepping correctly for the players which is the fifth most important event in your season then it's on you pal it's not on anybody else so. who arranged the meeting on the, for the Tuesday Jay Monaghan yeah tour commish I, okay, I know. I know. I, for a while here, it's like, it's like I was just sitting here listening to you go. It's like I'm not even here. <laughs> it feels like an episode of Golf Weekly. <laughs> but um, but no, it, we see it is interesting because I think the reason he's the spokesperson is because he's the best spokesperson. They that have. is true. Yeah, absolutely. He's the most articulate. He's the most intelligent. He he probably penetrates beyond you know golfers. We were talking about this before. And, you know, golfers aren't there's not many of them that kind of you know automatically endear themselves. 
to you. They're not the most um, inspirational. No, whereas, whereas Rory has a you know has something that is actually engaging, mm. and I suppose they've they've recognised this in their existential fight with live. And he's embraced it. Yeah, he has embraced it. And maybe, and that's that's a problem. But it is interesting what Fionn says then that there is a little industry around finding reasons why this time it hasn't worked out for him. And and to your point is it is worth. Rory is the best person of the in the golfing community to talk about these things because, as you said, he is the most articulate. He's also seemingly the most well-rounded. He's he's as comfortable talking about whether he should have played golf with Donald Trump as he is about, say, I don't know, the results that Wes Brom got. Hmm. You know what I mean? He has that in him. He has that versatility. Um, I, I, but I, which may which also may be a reason beyond the actual specifics of this why there's always a reason why he hasn't won because he doesn't have... He isn't. He isn't entirely focused just yeah. on playing golf. He hates that critique. He does, does he? hate that. Yes. Critique. Okay. Paul Kimmage will be putting that quote to him now in six weeks, and he'll be saying, "Who is that Dion Fanning? Yeah, outrageously wrong." Uh, but okay, I, well, I, but it, it's happy funny. To be wrong. I mean, because those interviews are great because often you get a a two year review sometimes from Rory, and the really interesting question is going to be, you know, so this is what he's saying now this week, heat of the moment. I need to get back to being a golfer, Grant. There's more going on, I'm sure. So in, in two years, we'll find out if he's completely out of steam or it was just a momentary dip. And we don't know yet. That'll be defined by Augusta. Absolutely. That's the golf. Yeah. That's Gary Lineker. You've picked out a few other stories. Eamon Sweeney and Cheltenham worth the uh, yeah. mention. So it's all, I mean, there's lots of Cheltenham coverage, as you might imagine. It's starting on Tuesday and... Evan Sweeney talks about a racing rivalry and name only and this is the pity almost we're, we're too good we've ruined Cheltenham basically Irish dominance is overwhelming in terms of uh, not just quantity 61 wins out of 84 at the last three festivals mm. but also quality 6 of the last 7 Gold Cups 7 of the last 10 Champion Hurdles 6 of the last 7 Ryanair Chases 8 of the last 10 Mares Hurdles that goes on in that vein uh, he says uh, the number of Irish uh, winners favoured is between 19 and 22 with the bookies at this year's festival. Willie Mullins is unbackable favourite to be top trainer. On it goes. He said, these days Ireland is the wealthier country as England spirals into economic crisis. We seem relatively at ease with ourselves compared to our neighbours. England slumping, unhappy, riven by bitter dissension. It has an 80s Ireland feel to it. And he also talks about the uh, pervasive lack of confidence has spread to horse racing. ITV's Cheltenham coverage fine in many respects is marred by a manically defensive note which suggests constant apology to the sports detractors on its behalf and there was a recent decision you might have seen to airbrush the whip out of Rachel Blackmore's hand in a photo advertising the festival which was quickly spotted by lots of people and only highlighted the fact that there is usually a whip in Rachel Blackmore's uh, hand and they've changed the, the whip rules uh, loads of jockeys suspended. It's a, it's a subtle change to RI, but for jockeys, it's a big difference. And so that's happening right ahead of the festival. And there's a big fear within the industry that almost like VAR gone wrong, this is going to completely make a hames of uh, the Cheltenham Festival at large. But um, there is that defensiveness to ITV's coverage in particular since uh, COVID and Cheltenham went ahead. There, it's just under the spotlight, particularly in England. It doesn't help that they're not being successful. Whereas here... There are definitely quibbles with it increasingly, the, the funding and uh, the welfare issue and, and Paul Kimmage writing about the mm. doping issue potentially. But I don't think it's in as defensive a position as it is in the UK. No, but I, but I think there, there are... I, I, 
think there are broader cultural reasons for that too in terms of where racing, the place racing op- occupies in Irish life compared to where it, op- you know, the place it occupies in English life, which is much more niche. And then where, where the place, any situation, any thing to what animal welfare would occupy, occupy in a corporate body like ITV's life. And that's the problem. We, we, you know, in Ireland, we probably have a different view of racing. But r- racing, we talked about this before. Racing, yeah. I think, in Britain especially, it's just on its last legs because, for n- new generations, the idea that this is, you know, you're going to go, you're going to go to, you're going to have a huge uh, uh, event with hundreds of thousands of people, and during the course of that, horses will die. That is just that is just alien to you know more and more people of 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 younger gener of younger generations it's just it's just it's unfathomable to them um we're not there yet but there's going that's going to grow and grow and i would say like you know Eamon says that the, like some the the, diff, the discrepancy is to do with our our self confidence as a people and our wealth and the and britain's uh you know the, the stuff we've talked about I think it's more to do with the fact that we're sending over state state backed. We are we are a state. We are the Abu Dhabi of our of horse racing. You know, we are sending. You know, we we the money that goes into horse racing from the horse racing, uh, from the betting levy, mm. goes into the prize money. Makes it so it is it is an incredibly turbocharged advantage that the racing world Irish racing has over 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 UK racing. Yeah. So like the idea again, like Manchester City, you know, there might be Manchester City supporters who still think they're the plucky underdog taking on the elite, but they're they're pretty they're they're backed by a state and Irish racing has that incredible, uh, unjustifiable Support. Man City is a good analogy because uh, for a long time Irish racing, obviously the odd winner at Chelsea yeah. was a cause for celebration. And there's still people, and you know, again in the in the world of kind of hackery, that's still how it's portrayed. Like we'll we'll have it all this week, Ireland taking on England, all this kind of stuff, ignoring the fact that now there is one underdog, and it's not because of Boris Johnson. Or it's because of you know, the uh, uh, it's because of Charlie McCreevy putting in the the horse racing levy. Like that's the reality of it. That's what's given it the, given it the, the power, and it's it's fed down over time. You have this prize money that is is huge in turn, and that's where most of it goes. And we talked about this a, a few weeks ago when I was on about Roy Barrett coming out and saying the football should get some of this money. Um, you look at there are a lot of sports that actually could do with. Uh, that are participatory sports in a way that horse racing isn't uh, that could do with this and is it is it enough is it justified because we can have a you know we can at the end of Cheltenham say we've we've had a great uh, we've had a great Cheltenham we've beaten England at Cheltenham Presbury Cup Dion come on there's an interesting and and Sweeney really does kind of highlight because obviously defenders will go what about Willie Mullins you know the greatest national hunt trainer ever you know with the best stable and he goes and he goes even if you were to take out every Mullins horse out of last year's festival the score would have still been 15-13 to Ireland (laughs) (laughs) that's annihilation yeah are you a Cheltenham fan would you get into it for the week at all no I, and n- n- for no reason other than I am convinced with a limited sample size of friends who are horse racing mad that unless I, I was exposed to it as a as a young boy by my dad or by an uncle, it's just difficult. 
And so as a result, I feel like I, I have friends who are real devotees and talk about it with like this enormous knowledge and passion. Mm. And, and, and I feel like I'm being excluded from like some conversation, some really kind of important conversation. And, I will, and I'll never know the love of watching, you know, a horse race. I've been to Cheltenham. A friend of mine did the, the, the sculpture of A.P. McCoy that's at Cheltenham. And I was there during Cheltenham week. Uh, I got to meet John Motson. Uh, yeah, yeah, and uh, the now, yeah. Uh, and yet, you know, I was there, and I was like, okay, there's a lot of people here. <laughs> That's a great insight. <laughs> it is, like, there is no doubt. Like, it, it, there, it is. If it is a great cultural institution, yeah. and sorry, it one hundred percent is. Yeah, like it really is. Like, I've I've been to it a couple of times, and. Uh, it is a kind of an extraordinary thing. It is, it, unfortunately, it has kind of been, um, because, you know, I think I think actually even, you know, I, I, I'm aware that some of these things I'm saying have been argued by people with much more knowledge of this for years, but, like, I think the extension of an extra day has diluted it a bit. It's become more of a, a, a you know, it, for, for its own reasons and for reasons of survival, it's become more of a corporate event. It's become a, a thing that you need to... Uh, you know, people go there for whatever corporate jollies are available, but it still is a, a great culture institution and racing. And I, I like like Fiona. I had you know I, people when you know people who are into racing and where they're coming from on that. It is a kind of glorious thing to watch. Yeah. Watch the way they build up to Cheltenham yeah. and the way and the way that happens. It just happens now that there is. I find there is it, there is a, a phoniness about what is what what is set up as the as the the challenge that um, needs to be, and, you know, Sweeney gets to it a bit, like needs to be interrogated yes. a bit, and that's the, that's the problem. With racing it. rivalry in name only is what he says. Fionn, you were uh, I don't know as a Liverpool fan, were you concerned or encouraged by the back page of the Sunday World? You wanted to mention it anyway. Yeah, just most sad. So, like, I think as a Liverpool fan last week's result the sample size is too narrow to, to really draw any conclusions you weren't saying we're back no 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 and I, nor was I saying that Man United now got awful rubbish either I just felt like yes one of the but and yesterday whatever but so, um, so how concrete is the word on Salah here well, I don't know how concrete it says. Uh, uh, now it has emerged, no sources given, that Klopp and Liverpool may consider cashing in on Salah this summer with Paris Saint-Germain, the most likely destination for a player who will toast his 31st birthday in June. If may, you were... May consider isn't locked in. No. Also, but if you were... If you were and, you know, given that uh, Liverpool's owners aren't necessarily... They don't, they're not really wedded to the romance of Liverpool Football Club. You know, it's a business and that's fine. Um be the smart move if from a financial perspective like you'll never cash in on him more than you would this year um, although I have to say and, and we were joking about it beforehand is, is that like a bit like when Daniel Webster was asked by uh, presumptive US President Benjamin Harrison to be his vice president in the 1840s he goes I, I propose to be dead before I am buried <laughs> and in the grave this is like Paris Saint-Germain for Salah it just feels a bit ugh, you know yeah, it does. Like you know, the fact that he signed that new contract does mean that they can look. They could look to cash in on him, and this, as Fionn says, would be the only opportunity. Yeah. But I, would he go to PSG? Um, and it is. It is like it is a problem with the Liverpool business model now that they've actually run out of people who they can sell at that. You know, are, are, they're going to have to wait a while to cash in on somebody the way they cashed in on Coutinho. 
Um, and you know the the idea being that COVID was something they would have looked. There was a couple of these players, Mane, even and Salah, may have been sold earlier if it hadn't been for COVID. But because of that, again, and what it did to the finances of every every European club, they've kind of stayed longer than they would have ideally wanted them to. Mm. Um, but I I also think like Salah was. He's, he's got he's he's become their record Premier League goal scorer. He's got twenty plus goals in a season this year again in a year when he's played badly. And would you say to Liverpool supporters, let's leave this in the hands of Darwin Nunes, uh, Cody Gakpo? Yeah, in Gakpo, I'd, I'd be a bit more confident in than than Darwin Nunes, who who has an extraordinary level of support from Liverpool fans. Which I don't think really is, uh, you know, commensurate with actually what so far he, he's done. And people can point to all the stats they like, but there is still. I was watching that game yesterday, and there's a moment when he's just offside when Robertson passes the ball to him, uh, and they cut to the bench, and th- like everyone is looking, kind of going, "You're on, you're on, the, you're on the touchline." Uh, Somebody tried. Somebody tried to say, "Oh, you know, he didn't get the pass when he wanted it. That's fine, but you still don't need to be offside." And those, they're they're the things that you would say, right? Are we going to take a chance on this guy who still some of the core fundamentals of being a forward are 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 a challenge to, or would we would we just let Salah let Salah's career play out at Liverpool? There's no doubt Salah is beloved at the club. You know, he's, he's an incredible player and. Like I've been to Anfield and they adore him. Like you know, in a way that they adored, you know, Gerard or Douglish or Rush before him. So you know, he has cemented himself as that Liverpool legend. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> Liverpool are in need of a refit. They know it. We the fans know it. So, um, but it is interesting. I was talking to a ex Premier League footballer who uh, had spoken to one of the coaching staff when they did sign Nunes, and he said they were quite surprised at how poor his first touch and decision-making was and that he, he needed a lot more work than they even thought before they bought him. Yes, I heard that as well. Mm. And it shows on the pitch. Yeah. I, I think a lot of the defence of him is just, you leave our boy alone. Yeah. Well, he always, he strikes me to bring a kind of racing back into, he always strikes me as kind of a, a loose horse Yeah. in the, yeah. In the Grand National. Joyful. Like, anything could happen. You know, yeah. he, could, he, could, he, could, he could finish the race ahead of everybody else. Yeah. Or he could just career left and, you know, bring about 14 horses down with him. Yeah. Uh, that's, the, uh, that's the sense I always get with Nunes. Um, uh, we don't have time to get through everything you've all picked out. Joe Brawley is very down on Dublin. Well, yeah, I thought... briefly mentioned that. Fire is gone. The Dubs don't even seem to care. That, that's his core point from their defeat to Derry last weekend. I'm sure lots of you saw it in television uh, a ghost team no spirit no drive uh, no hard running anymore no hard tackling anymore and he having watched them play against Kildare he said the thought in my head watching was pointless as in what is the point why are they turning up they're not tackling not running not competing not kicking they resemble nothing more than a middling Donegal team chugging around the field joylessly and he wonders after, after the Derry game I wondered did Conor Callaghan go mental did John Small read the riot act did Desi lose his temper and tell them the truth, man by man, or did nothing happen at all? Did they repeat a few comforting cliches, shower, get on the bus, eat their meal in the hotel and go home as if nothing had happened? He said, the team that once embodied everything that's good 
now embodies nothing at all. It would be a great pity if this is how it ends. Yeah, it's it's a pretty scathing take. Um, I like that, and it's a funny because uh, Joe, who is always value for an opinion, um, like he starts both this one and the article about Lineker with a quote, you know, and in this instance he start he quotes, Victor Frankl, uh, what man actually needs is not a tensionless state, but rather the striving and struggling for some goal worthy of him. And then adds that Dublin have forgotten that. Indeed, one can accuse Dublin of having forget- forgotten the words of an eminent Austrian psychiatrist. Um, I, uh, you know, it's the league. It's fine. It's uh, isn't it one of the criticisms. Well, the latter criticisms of the um, Galvan era was is that Dublin played to a format and they never ever moved from that format. So the pass was always on in a particular. So and. And that, you know, all great teams fade. Uh, you know, Desi's got different views. I don't know. As to what happened after losing to Derry, did they get screamed at or did they just go home and do nothing or maybe something in between? You know, they're not idiots. Yeah. Like, you got to figure that there is, they are conscious of the fact that Dublin are not in great nick, um, that they have been relegated from Division One. Um can you infer a lot from a league performance? Did uh, I don't know? Do you remember what when even under I guess they won a bunch of leagues, didn't they? They were no, they were a winning machine. There's been, there's been all Ireland's as well. The same, like, very the, worrying about this now. Yeah, sure. Um, but last year they were without Conor Callan within a point of Kerry who won the All Ireland. Precise. So, I I don't think if it was a war of attrition or a 38 game uh, Premier League campaign that they'd have enough depth, maybe. Uh, to compete the way they once did but championship when it gets to knockout can they put together 17, 18, 19 players who can do it? Yeah. Because he, nobody nobody else is perfection either. He gives an example um, about in the 67th minute this is against Derry score you know 11 points to 1-7 Kieran Kilkenny put through on goal and Derry were wide open and Kilkenny came in from the right-hand side, Cormac Costello, unnoticed, unmarked, took up a perfect position at the far post to pan the ball into the empty net. Only the pass never came. Kilkenny fisted the ball over the bar, went for the safe option rather than the adventurous one. Um, My son, this is Joe's son, says, what the F, what the F indeed. Uh, I'm reminded of the story O'Mulligan told me about the All-Ireland quarterfinal against Fermanagh in 2003 with the scoreline of 120 to 5 points and only a few minutes left. Mulligan was charging through the middle with the goal at his mercy. Peter Canavan took up a position, same thing, and Mulligan took the point, didn't pass it to Canavan who's clear on goal and uh, apparently Peter Canavan wasn't happy. What the F are you playing at? He roars at Mulligan. If the goal is on, give me the ball. Don't ever effing do that again. So what he's saying is Dublin don't have that. Mm. And and it is worth pointing out that Tyrone were like miles ahead. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I think that is an interesting point. He actually mentions Alex Ferguson. If Alex Ferguson was the manager, Dublin players would have been ducking football boots in the changing room. And again, you know, when he tells that story, he's reminded of the Alex Ferguson at Aberdeen. You know, after oh, the Scottish Cup final, you know, lambasting his own players after they just beaten Rangers in the Scottish Cup final for their their unprofessionalism of their performance, and that does you know Roy Keane not allow who was the player who wanted to take a penalty? Was it was Diego Forlan who was going to take a penalty to score yeah. his first goal, and Keane intervened and said like this isn't whatever they were not through three nil up, four nil up. That doesn't matter. Subsequently emerged he would give Diego a lift to training every day. <laughs> 
<laughs> Zero sentiment. Yeah, but that's again, and there is a point in that. Like the, and you know, this piece is interesting because when we were talking about Liverpool, you're talking about Dublin. The the attempt to figure out what goes, what's gone wrong. Yeah. Uh, and you know, in in this Dublin, you might say, well, Jim Gavin is gone. At Liverpool, you can say, well, Jurgen Klopp is still there. So there's there's always an attempt to try and figure out what is the ingredient that has that has disappeared, and is it just the sense that. We're, we're, we're just not that ruthless anymore like that is yeah. that's something you know and like Liverpool being a good example of it this week where they go from a game where they can be focused against Manchester United to a game against Bournemouth mm. where those things just drop off a little it's also worth pointing out that Ferguson later acknowledged that he that doesn't matter. People always bring that up as if, like, oh, you know, I, I, <laughs> I, uh, I was wrong about that. At the moment in time when they'd won the Scottish Cup, he called his the team a bunch of pathetic. losers. Did he say pathetic? pathetic. I think so. Yeah, uh, something like that. And that's the I, point. Like, he, you know, years later, he said this about everybody practically. Oh, I was wrong. I took it too far. <laughs> but that's not the point. Uh, Jim Gavin was. Yeah, he's well. He's Alex Ferguson. May well have been very underestimated, Jim Gavin. Yeah, like or because there was often they said, well, you know, it's the greatest generation of Gaelic footballers, yeah. bar maybe the Kerry team of the late seventies and. Fionn could have managed them. I could have. Could she think I could? No, don't be ridiculous. <laughs> no, I think his legacy um, is uh, going to. Grow. Yeah, I don't. I think it's funny because Paul Flynn writes with us at the currency now, and when Paul talks about Gavin and the stuff he did for them, it's just you know everything he said like and as a player he might be tempted sometimes to go oh, yeah we were a great bunch of players but it's like every every message he ever gave them was so good yeah. in terms of from the very from day one to the last day how he reinvigorated them how he did things how ruthless he was when he had to be ruthless like all those things were there and you know when you 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 like it's inevitable you come to take that for granted. Yeah. And it also proves that ruthlessness is a quality that is easy to define and very hard to come by. Like you can go, oh, I'm going to be more ruthless. I, <laughs> Desi Farrell's going to go, no, I need to be more ruthless. Or, or the players go, no, I need to be more ruthless. But as if Jim Gavin's ruthlessness was something he decided one day ago, I think this is a tactic that will really work yes. with my team. And yet... Like, I have no doubt that Desi Farrell is sitting around working as hard as he possibly can to figure out what is wrong with his team. But, and I'm sure he's pretty tough. Like, I'm sure he doesn't let players away with anything. But that that specific ruthlessness that Alex Ferguson had or Roy Keane had or Jim Gavin had, it's not something that you can just decide to have. You either have it or you don't. Yeah, and, fair point. And it really just... <laughs> We're pretty much out of time. There's lots of rugby coverage, as you might imagine, sure. given Ireland plays Scotland. And I know lots of you listen to this on podcasts, so I don't want to dwell on anything no. that may be dated. Brief mention, Andrew Porter interviewed David Walsh is very interesting. We talked about similar things on the show uh, with Andrew uh, late last year so he talks about the death of his mother Wendy when he was in his teenage years uh, he started secondary school the day after the funeral uh, developed an eating disorder went from pudgy kid to skinny kid to it says anorexic here and then uh, he eventually finds his way out of that goes the opposite direction and hits the gym at 6am 
is eating all sorts of smelly protein food at school and then going to the gym afterwards. And he says physical therapy or physical exercise, one of the cheapest, most underrated forms of therapy. And it talks a bit about the rugby career as well, which is just um, exceptional. He says, um, sometimes before Andy Farrell, I was so anxious coming into camp, I'd be counting every bump on the driveway into Carton House because I was going to a place that could be very stressful. And now he says his fiancée, Elaine, says, uh, it's quite annoying you're excited to see me uh, to be leaving me now so it's uh, echoes with what everyone is saying about the Andy Farrell uh, regime but when you do have to be fair a uh, giant manly rugby playing prop who'll be watched by a million people this weekend and next weekend talking about his eating disorder it's uh, it's kind of an impressive thing cool thing so that's page four and five of the yeah, Sunday it's, it's Times definitely interesting anything else in the rugby catch your eye <laughs> so Stephen Jones's uh, summary of the of the England destruction yesterday by France yeah uh, so I love this the first paragraph this was glorious it was gorgeous it was absolutely devastating and compelling it was France playing brilliant rugby in the modern idiom but based squarely on their heritage of skill and pace and attack it was the biggest home defeat England have suffered. And I'm like, okay, that's not a bad way to start in an English newspaper. But then the second paragraph, I feel, undoes. It was, in my opinion, a greater performance than that produced by Ireland in their magnificent win over France earlier in the season, to which you're going, that's just, and I'm not a rugby expert, but that's just plump wrong. It's like, hang on, so the team that destroyed England yesterday, Ireland, who are ranked number one in the world, beat them and you're telling me that two absolutely brilliant teams going head to head is less impressive than one really brilliant team destroying a team that is really not that good? No, sorry, that's just that's just ridiculous. Needless dig at us. But it felt, but, but or more, it was almost as though after writing this first paragraph, did he feel this weird need to kind of no, no, no? I need to prove that you know I need to save England in some way. Well, he's Welsh, so he wouldn't care. Oh, that's a good point, actually. Yeah but in an English newspaper or a British newspaper. Uh, we're done. Are you two retiring to talk Liverpool for an hour now over coffee or what's your plan? Uh, we were a bit of gardening. Mm-hmm. You were talking, Fionn was talking me through his powerhouse purchases there before. Oh, I'm you? sorry I couldn't make that. Yeah, yeah, it was Joe, we can talk about it. Honest to God, there is something so immensely satisfying about buying a power washer and just like using it on on the on the concrete at the back of your house. Do you know what I always uh, admire about your broadcasting? Is you can talk with the same enthusiasm about that. As oh yeah, I'm a simple person, everything really. Else. I'm quite simple-minded. Yeah, yeah. Like with a great sense of importance. Uh, John put a, put a video of his powerhouse uh, <laughs> up on Instagram a while ago and I did message him and say, I've watched oh, this Fionn. twice. Like, stop, stop, stop. So I don't know what that says about where, well, where we're going. Well, actually, and, and it's interesting because it inadvertently exposed a world of like on TikTok or Instagram reels and one of the most popular accounts on TikTok is of a man who clears drains and, and like there's something so immensely satisfying about watching a guy with like a rake or a, or a street brush just like wiping a clogged drain and the water that is built up around it all of a sudden just rushing out yeah. and there's something palpably satisfying about watching it and do you like watching videos where they pop pimples no See that I, and it, it is. It's a similar vein, isn't it? It's a it's similar it's cleaning up. <laughs> I feel, and I find those I can't. Maybe because I didn't know I, they, they they exist. Yeah, they're they're a big I, big I, thing. A whole world yeah, that thing. is an industry. Yeah, yeah. As a teenager, I, I, I a bit of acne, so I think probably it's just it hurts. Oh no, but they don't show routine. No, no, I realise that. It's like just it's a big like, huge kind of. You need a, a bowl to. Okay. All right. Wow. It's fun. I mean, I, at the age we're all getting to, I, I spent a lot of time looking at. Coffee grinders. Oh, interesting. The sage is the only one to go with. Well, I thought 
but it was just this little handheld thing where you I mean it looked like don't a, go, what would it, it looked like an artisan don't, tool from no. back in the day and so you just but I thought oh well that's it's going to take up less space yeah. and it'll be more uh, let, uh, cost effective mm. and so I was looking at this thing that looked it was okay and then it was like 300 sterling and I thought well I'm mm. not going to get that to do it yourself yeah. Yeah. No, no. And also, like, you end up like we had one, and my wife would come in, and I was there, like, uh, you know, you know. Uh, now maybe I should probably need to take more exercise, but because she was like, you know, okay, this is we're going to get you, a, we're going to get you an automatic coffee grinder if this is what you're yeah. doing every morning. I so. was shocked. Apparently, this three hundred pound one will grind all the uh, morsels into exactly the same size, whereas a cheaper version, you'll get different sizes of, it, of morsels. By, by hand one, by, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, resulting in a more sour tasting coffee. But if you get the Sage, which is the... Well, is that one. a machine? Yeah. I don't want to get a machine. Too much space. It's not that big, it's, you know. And does it make it... Yeah. Well, obviously it makes that sound. <laughs> <laughs> it goes... <laughs> I think we're done. I think we're done. Dion Fanning from The Currency, Fionn Davenport. I'll see you in Golf Weekly soon. Thank you for uh, the paper review. Thank you. That is us done. Thanks, Joe.